Hello and welcome to the Sojourners in the Storm Bible Study Podcast. Today we are going to be continuing on in the book of Mark. As we have reached the second half of chapter 7, we'll be covering verses 24 through 37 and finishing out that chapter. So um, if you have your Bibles ready, let's get together and let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you do for me and all that you give to me, Lord. Father, I lift up this audience, Lord. I lift up all those that are, are listening to this podcast. Father, I pray that you would go before each and every one of us, that you would teach us, that you would use us, that you would instill truth and honesty and integrity in each and every one of us, Lord. Father, I pray and just ask you, please just go before me today, Lord, as uh, you know, as you exposit your word, Lord. Father, I pray that your word would come forward and none of my own. Father, I thank you. I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in our last study, we saw Jesus go to battle with the Pharisees and the scribes over the traditions that they had instituted and built into their lives. Now, these were ways of separating themselves from other peoples. The main point that Jesus made was that it does not matter what a, present, uh, what a person presents outwardly, but that the inward heart is what produces holiness. Now, at the same time, he was declaring an end to the separation between Jew and Gentile, between clean and unclean, because we all know that the kingdom of God is through grace for all of us and for all that are willing to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. So taking a look back at the audience uh, of the book of Mark, um, we're reminded that the gospel was written to the Gentiles, right? to the Romans in particular, as they were the dominant Gentile culture of the time. Now they were men of action, so this gospel moved swiftly from scene to scene, as we see the focus shift from wonder and intrigue by the, the Pharisees to scorn and rejection. We see Jesus begin to go from place to place, and largely stay in the outskirts of the areas. His reputation had grown, and he was well known by the people, and so what was happening was he couldn't actually go into the cities because there were so many people flocking to him that it was hard to minister in those places. People were trying to get to him spiritually as well as physically because now they were in open opposition to him. You know, we read in, in the last study also that the Pharisees were pretty hurt and he rebuked them pretty hard. And from this point on, we're going to see them really start to attack Jesus and come after him. They're trying to set him up. They're trying to get him arrested. They're trying to do all these different things. So as we move from the, our last scene, most likely happening in Capernaum, if you remember, Jesus and the disciples were trying to get some rest for a while now, and they have thus far been interrupted in their attempts. Uh, when they had returned for, uh, from their missionary journeys, for instance, they were greeted by the crowd of 5,000. From there, they went to Bethsaida and then Genesaret and ministered there as well. And now we get to a point where Jesus leaves Israel altogether and leaves and travels to the north. So in verse 24, it says, From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. So Jesus seeks rest in the Gentile regions. Tyre and Sidon is an area located about 40 miles north of Jesus' home base of Capernaum. He wanted privacy. He wanted solitude in which he could instruct his disciples in a private setting. It says here he wanted not to be noticed as he went to this region. Now, if we look back at the area, it, it was part of ancient Phoenicia, if you remember. 
the uh, the Old Testament history of the area, the most prominent woman in Phoenicia was uh, Jezebel. Now, if you remember, she uh, influenced her her husband, King Nabat, to worship the Baals, and, and uh, Nabat was basically following in the footsteps of his father Jeroboam, who had done so as well. She also was a woman that ordered the killing of the prophets in the area during that time. And, and two of the main prophets during that time were Elijah and Obadiah. Now, what happens when Jesus arrives is different from uh, what he had intended. There was not much, much expectation as far as finding people that had faith in the God of Israel when he arrived, as, as most people there were Gentiles. But if we look at verse 25, it says, For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus' ministry had gained respect in, in areas outside of Israel. So as Jesus arrives, he is again met by a woman who is in need of spiritual help. Now, of the 35 recorded miracles in the gospel, four of them are miracles that are directly performed towards women. We see the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in chapter 1 of Mark, the raising of the widow's son in Luke chapter 7, the raising of Lazarus in John, uh, Lazarus in John uh, chapter 11, and also we see this miracle take place. So as Jesus had arrived looking for privacy and rest, he instead was encountered by a woman in distress. Now this woman had several things working against her as she came to meet Jesus. Uh, first was her nationality. She was a Gentile, and Jesus was a Jew. Next was the fact that she was a woman living in a largely male-dominated era, and so she would have little social standings when she came and, and, and was asking for Jesus. The next thing against her was Satan. Uh, you know, her daughter was possessed by one of his demonic subordinates. And next we have the disciples against her. As we read in Matthew's account of this uh, story, Matthew chapter 15, verse 23 says, and he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. You know, lastly, it seemed like Jesus was against her. You know, if we read the language in verse 26, it says, She kept asking, and, Matthew, and in Matthew we read, He answered her not a word. But instead of getting discouraged, the woman's faith and, uh, and desperate situation kept her in a place where she would stop at nothing to find deliverance. You know, if we look at the conversation from Matthew's gospel, we see more of how her situation had moved uh, her to faith. So in Matthew 15, 22, it says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now the surviving Canaanites from the time of Israel's conquest and uh, of the territory had moved north and settled in the region Jesus was now in. You know, these were the most morally despised people in the Old Testament as far as enemies of Israel went. This would have set a Jewish reader on edge as Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Uh, we, but we are studying Mark, and this very same woman is described as a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, where in Matthew she's described as a Canaanite woman, and thus gives a Gentile or a Roman audience a person that they could identify with on a nationality level. So first, uh, she first refers to Jesus as son of David. Now this was a term used to describe a person as a Jew. 
This also recognized the, uh, the kingdom of David, which had embraced many non-Jewish people over the land. Now, her second plea goes differently. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 25, we read this. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, instead of recognizing, recognizing the nationality of Jesus, she recognized his kingship. She both worships him, which was not something that a normal person does, especially a, a Gentile to a Jew in, in, this, in those days. And second, she calls him Lord, a term that implies her submission to him. So two things to notice here. As Matthew writes to the Jewish audience, his point is that even the Gentiles recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And second, only God can accept worship. Worship of any person or angel is forbidden in the Bible, but here Jesus accepts it and even responds to it. So when people come and tell us, well, Jesus was just a prophet, or Jesus was just a happy hippie teacher, spreading love and joy and daisies. Well, no, we can go back to points in time, especially in Gospels like this, and say, look, no, Jesus accepted worship. Only God can accept worship. So Jesus was the God-man. He was God on earth, the Son of Man, right? The woman had made her needs known to Jesus in that her daughter was possessed and in need of help. And she pleaded her case. And now comes the difficult part of this passage. Now, before we get into it, many people have difficulty with this. A lot of the liberal church, a lot of the woke churches will try and use this passage as a means of uh, basically disgracing Christianity and, and biblical views, but we're going to break it down and we're going to get to the truth of the matter. And we're going to see that what you are hearing in a lot of different places is not the truth, but this is the actual truth that I'm going to give you. So verse 26 in Mark says this, But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. So Jesus' ministry was geared towards Israel first, but was extended to Gentiles second. So at first glance for us, it looks as if Jesus is rejecting the woman and making a derogatory statement towards her and her people. In fact, I've seen videos where some woke pastors make this claim, being that Jesus was a racist and was using slurs against this woman, but this isn't the truth. And to get to the bottom of this, we look to the purpose of Jesus' ministry on earth, and we find that in Matthew's account. So going back to Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, it says, But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so this gives us the mission point of Jesus' ministry. He came to bring salvation to Israel, to the Jewish people. Right? It's not that Jesus did not want to help this woman because of her race, nationality, or gender, but that he was sent to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So when people make the claim that Jesus was making a racist claim, they are showing their ignorance as to the purpose of Jesus' ministry. This is what happens when we try to paint Jesus in the image of man and do not take the time to look to the reality of who Jesus was actually, Jesus actually was in both character and context of what was happening at the time, right? Many people will read through the Bible and find something that suits their narrative or will bend scriptures to make it fit their opinions. But actual Bible study comes with the historical, the grammatical, and the actual research of these different things. Remember, we have four Gospels in the Bible. 
Many of these Gospels mention the same miracles and the same things that are happening, but from different perspectives. Okay, Peter is going to see it differently from John. John is going to see it differently from Matthew. And they are going to write their accounts down, and we can compare and contrast them, and we get an idea of what happened, right? So looking at Matthew and looking at Mark, we see an extra line put in Matthew that isn't there in Mark. Right. We get that understanding of what Jesus's ministry and what his purpose was. Now, the term he used for little dogs was not a derogatory term, but one instead used to describe a house pet. When he was saying what he was saying was not in any way to put down, but rather using illustration to get across his point. Now, let's look at Jesus words as a whole and break down theologically what he was actually saying. Keep it in mind the words from Matthew. So let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. So first we define who the children are. This is Israel, or the Jewish people, who were descendants of Israel via his sons, those that God had delivered from Egypt. Next we examine the children's bread. This would be salvation. It had come for the Jew first, and then the, and then the Gentiles, right? We find that all the time in Scripture. In John chapter 4, verse 22, it says, You worship what you do not know. We know what, what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Okay? Now, lastly, we have the little dogs. And, you know, we all have little dogs, right? If yours are anything like mine, when I sit down to eat, immediately there's a head resting on my leg and two eyes looking up for me for a bite of whatever I have to eat, right? Now, in that day, people placed their bread the prepared food in front of their children first so that they could eat and the other usable, unusable foods as well as the leftover foods went to the pets second. Now Jesus was telling the woman that his first priority is being there uh, was to, in being there was to instruct his disciples. It is not appropriate to interrupt a family meal to give the dogs food from the table. So it was not appropriate for him to interrupt his ministry to the disciples to give his services to her, a Gentile. But Jesus' reluctance to help stimulated her faith. And it's not really a reluctance, I would say, but I think he was waiting to see how she would respond. I think he was waiting to see. I, I think he understood, you know, God being omnipotent, knew who she was. He knew her heart, he, he, you know, and he understood this thing. But he was waiting to see if she got discouraged. He was waiting to see if she would walk away. Sometimes our faith gets tested in that way, right? When we don't get what we want or something doesn't go in our favor, how often do we turn our backs on the Lord and walk away? But not this woman. She stayed and she didn't argue, but she responded intelligently and she responded correctly. Um, but let's get back to this. So in context... What Jesus is saying is the people of Israel are to receive salvation first and the Gentiles second. There was not a derogatory term towards the Gentiles, but the order in which salvation would come to them. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, it says, Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth, right? Eventually, the light would come to the Gentiles and salvation would go to everyone. Now, the time would come when the Gentiles and the Jews would be offered salvation. 
It's just that the Jews had the first opportunity because this is the God they had worshipped and looked for since the days of Abraham. And yet they missed the mark when he arrived. Now what happens with the woman and her response tells us both of her faith and her understanding. So in verse 28 it says, And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. So salvation is granted to all who choose to believe, Gentile or Jew. Now the woman's response is one of respect, as she refers again to Jesus as Lord, and tells him in so many words, sometimes you drop a french fry and the dog picks it up. Now if you have dogs, you know what I'm talking about. You're eating chips or fries or bread, and, and as the crumbs are dropping to the floor, the dogs are there snatching it up. In this case, though, as the Jewish people were more interested in Jesus' miracles than his message, in many cases, it could be argued that the children of Israel were like little children wandering around uh, with a hot dog in the backyard, and when they drop it, Fido comes and gets the whole thing, right? Um, I can remember stories uh, growing up where, you, you know, liver was served at the, the dinner table, and somebody that didn't like liver would be faking bites and handing it to the dogs under the table. This would be kind of the situation, right? Jesus is coming, especially to the Pharisees and to the religious people, and he's giving them the truth. He's setting straight what the law actually means. He's giving them the law of grace instead of the law of Moses. And what they're doing is they're rejecting it. They're listening with one ear and they're throwing it to the dogs underneath because the dogs are saying, hey, look, there's salvation. There's all this different stuff. And, uh, and I shouldn't say dogs, but the Gentiles. And, and the Jewish people are just passing it off. But you know what? These guys had an actual need. They had a heart for the Lord, especially this woman. Look, she's, she's begging him. She's on the floor. She's worshiping him. She's crying out. She's at his feet. How many times do we need to go to Jesus' feet, especially in the times when we're, when we're hurting, when we're desperate, when we're, you know, we're down? We should be praying at all times, when, when things are good and also when things are bad. Now, her response is that, uh, you know, what she's basically saying is, I see what you're saying. I know what you can do and who you are. I believe you can deliver my daughter. Please pass the blessing down to us. So her point was that the dogs get some food at the same time as the children and thus do not have to wait. Now, it's not about nationality. It's not about race. It's about faith and submission. The woman in word submitted to Jesus and in action believed on his message and ability. She worshipped him. That is to give reverence and adoration to him. And Jesus recognized that. It's also worthy to point out as well that Jesus had meant, uh, if Jesus had meant to insult the woman, her reaction would have been markedly different. But she responded intelligently and continued to ask in faith for Jesus to intervene, and her faith was recognized and rewarded. Verse 29 says, Then he said to her, For this saying, you go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So Jesus rewards the woman's faith and demonstrates power to heal from a distance. The woman had responded in humility and faith, and Jesus recognized and moved in the woman's life. It says that the demon had gone out of your, uh, has gone out of your daughter, which is in the past tense. You know, the cure had already taken place, and the child was already delivered before he had finished speaking. It's also worth, uh, worth noting uh, that Jesus healed at a distance, 
And that distance is sort of uh, descriptive of the distance spiritually between the Jews and the Gentiles. It seems like whenever we see the Gentiles come to Jesus, they come with a desperate heart. And most of the Jews come to see the spectacle. Again, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, it says, uh, speaking of another time when Jesus healed from a distance. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you, that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And this and his servant was healed that same hour. So when we talk about the separation and the animosity animosity that was shared between the Jews and the Gentiles of the time. And then look at the cross as the point in time when all men were saved by one. We can lay those old rivalries to rest. You know, I think our current in our current age, we could all take a lesson from this story, as well as the story of the centurion in chapter 8, and realize that it does not matter who we are or where we are from, but what matters is that we trust Jesus and that in itself makes us all equal in the brotherhood of saints by the blood of Christ. Now I think another thing that is worth mentioning here too, is when Jesus did heal the Gentiles, he always healed them from a distance. So in that day, if a Jewish person was to go into a Gentile house, they would, con would be considered unclean. And I think the reason that he didn't go in there, because we saw him do many things, right? We saw the woman that had the, the continuous flow of blood touch him, which would have made him unclean, but she was a Jewish woman. We saw, uh, you know, the we saw them eat with unwashed hands, which, you know, it wasn't the truth, but the Jewish and the religious leaders considered it to be an unclean thing. Um, we see all these different things, but I think if he would have went into their actual houses and, and gone into their drama cells, I think he would have lost whatever legitimacy that he did have with the, the Jewish people, the ones that actually had a, a true faith, and that could have hampered the ministry. But you know what? God in his grace, God in his love, and God in his mercy still healed and delivered these people from the ailments and, and the uh, possession. You know, in this country, though, we have such a sense of spiritual uh, separation uh, in the world today. I believe the flames are being lit not by the people on the streets, but the people in power that are using division as a tactic for turmoil in order to make the promises. Uh, if we only had it, to gain the promises from from us, that if we give them more power, you know they'll be able to change and fix everything. And you know what? As I'm talking about that, and as we're going over this passage, because this passage does present that difficulty, this is a passage where unbelievers where uh, the liberal church will use this as a means to rally um, Black Lives Matter, 
and, and all these other different uh, organizations that are anti-God, but pro, uh, you know, basic, basically racial warfare. And, and they'll use this to rile it up. And he, he, what it is, it's an attack on, on the Bible. It's attack on Jesus and it's attack on Christianity because in this world today, Christianity is believed to be backward. It's believed to be archaic. It's believed to be wrong. Where the same principles and morals that we're learning right now through this book are actually applied to our daily lives. And if more people would actually apply them to their daily lives, we wouldn't have such problems that we have right now. You know, we wouldn't have an overflow of drugs coming across our border because we would care for and love our neighbor, not be there to try and bring them to destruction for profit. You know, we wouldn't be worried about the abortion uh, going away in all these different states. Why? Because we would be practicing abstinence. We would be practicing responsibility and integrity and all the different things that Jesus brought to us, but so many men reject. You know, racism and racial things like this are used as a means of breaking down systems in order to try and rebuild another one. Right now we have a uh, basically a mentality in this country where the government is going to save us from everything. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. Most people are sitting here waiting for the, the government to bail them out of whatever situation that they're in. But it's not going to happen. We have to get up and we have to work on our own. Um, you know, going back to the text here um, and, and, and this idea, we'll read a quote from Saul Alinsky who once said an organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent. He must create a mechanism that can drain off the underlying guilt for having accepted the previous situation for so long. Out of this mechanism, a new community organization arises. Okay, so what are people trying to do? They're trying to replace the Bible with a new ideology where everybody is fair and equal through equity, but that doesn't actually work. Because if you do this for long enough, what you're actually doing is you're creating a division and a resentment between different peoples that is hard to repair. You know, Alinsky was a Marxist and held to very radical views of race and using race as a means of disrupting the world to create a Marxist utopia. You know, the problem is that the utopia is built on hatred of your neighbor because their beliefs and their views. You know, Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That means that we hold their lives to the same regards that we hold our own. We are not taught to hate, but to love. And love is powerful. Love is sacrificial. Love is unifying. Love is the cross of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh of hands, that at the... At, at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so also to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity 
that he came and preached peace to you who were far off to the uh, and to those who were who were near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the father now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets jesus christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the lord and in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You know, there may have been a time and an order in which salvation through Jesus Christ would come to the world. But as we live, as of right now, in the time, in this time, when salvation is offered through faith to all who are willing to accept it, it doesn't matter how far we are or may have been from God. He can heal us as before. And, and he can fill us before we even finish praying and asking forgiveness. He is loving, he is compassionate, and he is powerful. Warren Wiersbe writes this, Great faith is faith that takes God at his word and will not let go until God meets the need. Great faith can lay hold of even the slightest encouragement and turn it into a fulfilled promise. Lord, increase our faith. Verse 31 says again, Departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand, uh, his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. So Jesus the Creator speaks, and the creation responds. Here we have Jesus leaving the, sea, the, the area of Tyre and Sidon and going back towards the Sea of Galilee to the region of Decapolis. Now this is also known as the region of the Ten Cities, which is significant because if you recall, this gospel account is written in a way that is geared towards the hearts and minds of Gentiles and the Romans. This area of Decapolis was sort of a home away from home for the Romans. If Rome is a city on ten hills, then the ten cities of Decapolis remind them of that area. This is only also the only gospel that mentions this miracle taking place. And so I believe that it was put here as an encouragement to the Gentiles that would be reading this account. Now as the events take place, we can see that Jesus again was encountered by a multitude of people. And in particular, one man who is deaf and has a speech impediment is brought to him. Jesus takes him aside so as not to draw attention to what is about to happen. Now, if we read a little bit further, he tells the man not to go around telling everybody what has happened. You know, he had come to this point in Israel, so become in this point to to this point in Israel so popular that it was hard for him to go into the cities because people knew him and they were crowding him. I think that he was trying to keep a what he was trying to do is keep a place among the Gentiles where he could go and get some privacy and some rest, rest with his disciples. And so moving the man away from the multitude or the big crowd would have given him a chance to be one with him, one-on-one uh, -on -one with him, basically. Now the man was deaf and could not hear. And so by placing his fingers in his ears, the vibrations from Jesus speaking would be felt by the man in his ears through his fingers. Jesus spat. 
That was a common act done by healers during the time. So this may have been a way of Jesus sort of blending into the culture, if you will, and not drawing attention to himself. He was mimicking the actions of the people of the day. Then he touched his tongue. This would be an encouragement to the deaf man as he stood there with Jesus' fingers in his ears. Verse 34 says, Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is to be open, in Aramaic. When Jesus sighed, this can be seen as two different actions taking place. First, it was Jesus having compassion over the situation of the man. And second, it was an internal prayer offered up to the Father. We find this same word for sigh used in the book of Romans pertaining to uh, the same type of thing taking place. Just in Romans, the translation is groaning. So in Romans 8.26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our, in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Sighing and groanings are pretty much the same word used here. Now the man could not hear Jesus speaking, but he could see him, and he could feel him, but he could not hear him. But that wasn't the point. You know, at this moment in time, the Creator spoke, and the creation heard and responded, and the man's ears and tongue returned to their proper functioning state. Now this is kind of a cool thing that came up during the discussion after uh, the study on Tuesday night that we do uh, live. And... You know, one of the ladies in the group is an actual uh, a linguist. And so what she was saying was like, how amazing is it that a deaf man could understand the language and was able to speak at that time? And now if you go back to Genesis and you take a look at Adam and Eve, you know, it says many times that the Lord spoke to them in the garden. So when he created man, he created man fully functioning and intelligent. He created man with language. He created man with the ability to decipher and understand language, right? There was no evolution taking place. We see that in this miracle. Um, there was no learning. God created us intelligent. And when he healed this man, he gave him that same intelligence. Not that he wasn't intelligent. You know, obviously, you know, deaf people, blind people, uh, they have different skills that most of us don't have, right? But, you know, it was a different form of intelligence that he gave him, where he was able to communicate and operate in society. In verse 35, it says, Immediately his ears were opened, and then it, it, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they, uh, the, them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So Jesus was glorified in his work in the Gentile regions. Immediately the man was healed. He was able to speak plainly and normally, and he could hear for the first time in his life. Now I can't imagine what that would be like, to finally be able to hear the breeze passing through the trees, footsteps on the ground, the birds singing in the air, the raindrops on a rooftop. How was this man feeling at this point in time? You know, I think about it. Just a few months ago, my mom, who has had some problems with hearing for the last few years, finally got some hearing aids. And, you know, she got some state-of-the-art hearing aids, like the best you can get, right? Now, I remember the first day taking her to her appointment to have them programmed and set up just for her. And as we were walking out of the office... On, on the 
onto the parking lot right there off Main Street, right here in Los Lunas. It's actually right next door to the church that we attend over here. Um, she could hear the traffic on Main Street. And, you know, this wasn't very far away, maybe 150 feet. And it's usually pretty loud because that's a busy street. There's only one main artery that goes through Los Lunas, New Mexico. And, and that's it. You know, there's cars every half second passing by. And, you know, just one of the most amazing things of my life was seeing her eyes light up. She told me that she, she could hear the traffic on the road. Um, and, and it was noticeably loud all the time. I think about that as I think about this man who the first time ever was hearing anything and just how his heart must have been overwhelmed with gratitude towards Jesus as these changes were taking place in his life. It's sort of a, an amazing thing to see the reaction of somebody that hasn't been able to hear suddenly get the ability back again. You know, in Jesus' day, that did not have the, uh, they didn't have the technology that we have. These men were healed by faith and that provision was given out of grace. Now, the more that Jesus asked the, and, and even commanded, it says here, for people not to go about telling what was happening and what he was doing for them, the more they would go out and do it. Now, obviously, Jesus' purpose in this his earthly ministry was to preach the gospel and bring salvation to Israel. And in thinking about why Jesus came to do that would be less than excited about the message getting out uh, to everybody is sort of bewildering. But at the same time, I think it lines up with his character and with what he has told us in Scripture as well. Remember the Sermon on the Mount when he told us, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, the acts that Jesus was doing miraculously for people were not the same as the miracle of salvation that was yet to come. And I think that if people only saw him as a healer and a miracle worker, it would be harder for them to believe as the, him as the Savior as well. I think that especially holds true in the Jewish community, where time and again, they had seen prophets. They had seen Elijah perform miracles in the past. They were very, very well versed in scripture and had an understanding of that. And so probably some of their difficulty in seeing Jesus as Messiah came from the expectations that he was just another prophet that had come. I believe that is still the hang up for them today. Conversely, if we look at the geography of where Jesus is at now, He's in a Gentile area, and to my knowledge, the Gentiles were not looking for the Messiah or the Savior, but they were looking for a whole host of different gods and, and God-like figures who all play different roles in their lives. Now, the thing about idols is idols cannot speak. They cannot hear and they cannot move. Only God can do that. And so when God in the flesh came down from heaven and presented himself to them, I think it blew their minds and they couldn't help but ask to talk uh, and talk about him. Verse 37 says, He uh, has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. You know, these guys had come to a completely, uh, had to be completely astonished. And in fact, the work that Jesus did there did not go in vain. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 29, it says, Jesus departed from there, skirted the area, the sea, uh, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them, them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the, the, the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seen. They glorified the God of Israel. I think what happened here is people recognized Jesus' nationality. 
They listened to his message whenever he spoke. And lastly, and most importantly, they recognized his power as something that they did not understand, but wanted to know more of. And in that, they glorified the God of Israel. If God would send a man like this, what else could he do for them? Now, a couple of things that we can draw from this. First of all, it's compassion. We have so many people that disagree with us, that don't believe the same way that we believe, and some that are just completely lost, but each and every one of those people has a void in their lives where God can come in and fill it. And for and, and so for us, we should not be like those that separate ourselves from the people of the world. We may not be of this world, but we are still on this world. And so our duty as ambassadors to Christ is to show the love and the compassion that Jesus showed the woman and her daughter. And to this deaf and mute man, we should not draw any distinction between ourselves and anybody else because we are all part of God's creation. We are all redeemable through the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, if these Gentiles would glorify God in their actions, can fall at his feet and worship him as the woman did, then we too, as believers, as people that know the truth, believe the truth and trust the truth, we should be doing the same thing. Father God, Lord, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for your word and thank you for your message. Father, thank you for healing those, for showing those, uh, showing us, Lord, through the scriptures that you love us no matter who we are, that you're there to heal us, that you're there to take care of us, Lord, that all we need to do is believe. And so, Father, I pray for the faith of all those that are listening, Lord, all those that don't know you. Father, that at some point they would come to you and just ask. And, Lord, that you would just move as you so frequently do in our lives. Father, I thank you. I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.